you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding, and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. So today we've got a slightly different guest coming on the Metaverse show. Normally we have founders from Web3. The conversations can be quite technical. What I wanted to do was to invite somebody on who has a slightly different perspective on space and can perhaps give a slightly different framing, a more accessible framing to all the wonderful stuff that we're talking about to onboard more and more people into this mission of an open metaverse. So today we've got a former hedge fund manager, economist, and macro investment strategist, one of the few investors that predicted the mortgage crisis of 2008, um, and more recently has been getting involved in crypto and become a great commentator on it, advocator for it and its principles, um, as well as the metaverse and something that he uses to frame all that called the exponential age. So today I'm really happy to welcome on the show, co-founder of Real Vision and CEO and publisher of the global macro investor, Raul Pal. Welcome, Raul. Great to be here. Thank you. So you are co-founder of Real Vision, CEO and publisher of the global macro investor. As I said, I'd be amazed if people haven't come across your stuff already, in particular, um, the exponential age. However, you know, there are just so many brains and perspectives coming into the space now. I know you talk about it as a black hole, and, I, and you're a really great example of that, right? The kind of people that are being sucked into this, giving us a really, really powerful brain trust. So I thought it was really important. Actually, one of your team reached out for me to come on one of your formats to talk about the Open Metaverse OS. Um, and so you very kindly agreed to come on mine prior to that. And I think actually it works quite well because I think you do a really good job of framing what's happening in a macro sense um, and then kind of tears up to talk about how this converges. You call it the event horizon, you know, crypto and the metaverse and virtual worlds. So you're by background, a former hedge fund manager, uh, economist, macro investment strategist, as I said, one of the few investors to predicted the mortgage crisis in 2008. Um, but the reason why I've got you on is, is because your brilliant commentary on both crypto and the metaverse, and as I said, something called the exponential age and exponential assets. Um, and there's some really powerful concepts in there, some brilliant sound bites as well. So I'm going to try to get you to expand on some of them. But at the same time, I think you did that video on the exponential age. It was an hour and a half long. We've only got an hour um, so at best, it's going to be a summary, and, and hopefully we get to riff a little bit on, on, on some of the concepts. So you're one of several high-profile macro investors that have been coming into the crypto space over the last decade, um, troubled by this kind of debt super cycle. So you know, that includes the likes of Dan Moorhead at Pantera, um, Mike uh, Novogratz at Galaxy. But very quickly, you're kind of passion for the space has evolved beyond Bitcoin into crypto much more broadly. Um, and I think you're doing a great job of bringing in what I would understand as a new audience of traders, bankers, you know, people in capital markets, whom uh, my other guests might consider as normies in, into the space. 
and and framing it in a way that's understandable, accessible. Things we're often criticised for with this show, often it's, it's it can kind of be you know we're, we're inviting people that are already in there. It gets highly technical. My friends listen to it and they're just like, I've no idea what you, you guys are talking about. So. My hope is this is going to be the episode that I give give to them for the, the kind of red pill where they can kind of take it and they're going to get some of the bigger bigger concepts. Um, and you do it with a lot of swearing as well, so you swear even more than me, which is uh, which is a feat. So hopefully we we get to do a few swear words as we go. So if I kind of try to start from from the top, as I said, you're a well known macro investor, and you make the argument that crypto is macro. And at the same time, um, whilst the rest of macro is dying, this kind of death of macro, and the idea that actually those two things aren't separate, um, they're not happening in parallel, but they are kind of convergent paths. So could you maybe help us just start from the top? What would you mean by that? Yeah. So why are macro people interested or why did they become interested from 2011, 12 onwards in crypto? And one after the other, most of us have moved across in one way, shape, or form. It's because macro looks at the structure of global economies, the financial system, and the opportunities that that give. We'd all noticed, because it was our job to notice, that we'd become the most indebted society the world had ever known. So we'd become entirely financialized. And that's a whole topic for another day and why but this is where we are. And by creating perverse incentives, we made it worse. So if you worry about debt, well, the thing that happens in recession is you end up cutting interest rates to make sure the debt doesn't blow up. The lower the interest rates go, the more the debt goes up. And so you end up in this mess. And all of us looked at this from about 2000 onwards after Asia had blown up in 1997 from a debt crisis, and everyone thought, okay, this is going to blow up the Western world. Soros, the famous investor, wrote a book called The Crisis of Global Capitalism, which was his idea was it was going to move from the emerging markets and hit the developed markets. That was 2000. 2001, that big recession comes. The Federal Reserve and all of the central banks cut interest rates to try and stimulate the economy so the debt doesn't go blow up. And that leads to the housing bubble. Because everyone thinks interest rates are free, buy houses. That leads us into 2008. Now we've got this super indebted system, record household debt, record corporate debt, record government debt, record housing debt, and we blow up the whole thing. So the answer to stop everybody being decimated in particular, these baby boomers who are edging towards retirement, was to cut interest rates and then do another piece of magic, which is printing money, quantitative easing, um, to inject more money into the system. That saved the system. Also, massive fiscal stimulus. It saved the system, but again, created more perverse incentives because now money was free. Interest rates got to zero, and they were giving it away every time the economy became weak, they were pushing money to the banking system and say, go and do something with this. So it created what seems to be an enormous asset bubble. And we'll come a bit onto that uh, later. But that whole thing everyone looks at in the macro world and said, this is going to blow up. 
And the only way it's not going to blow up is if we've got an alternative. And lo and behold, I started back in 2012 to look for a solution. I was in Europe. We'd just gone through the 2008 crisis, and then Europe almost blew apart. We almost lost our banking system. And I thought, you know, I need to find the world's safest bank. I need to find something as an answer here because, you know, everybody's going to get totally fucked if this happens. So then a friend of mine came to me, a guy called Emil Woods, who was a hedge fund manager at the time. He said, you need to look at Bitcoin. And so I took a proper look at Bitcoin and I thought, you know what, this and the blockchain technology was going to allow us to record ownership of assets, which is the problem in an indebted society, who owns what? And then I started to realize it had other benefits. So I started investing in 2013, uh, 12, 13 in Bitcoin. The first time I bought it went up 100% and I sold it immediately. I'm like, wow, that happened in a month. Didn't quite understand what this thing was. Um, and I did a lot of research on it over time and have been involved. But to me, this was this parallel financial system that I called it. Well, it wasn't actually parallel. It was convergent. So we had this convergent new financial system. We're still pretty nascent. And this beast of a financial system that was being taped up and held together. And I thought, if this one blows up, we're in trouble unless this one scales fast enough. And I call it like a migration. It's essentially a migration into a new system. And I knew that the next recession, these two convergent paths were going to meet because the next recession was going to take more quantitative easing, more fiscal stimulus, and there were no interest rates to cut, really. And lo and behold, March 2020 comes along, and there's the signal. It's like, okay, we're going to blow everything up. If we're not careful, we need people to move across. And people did in huge numbers. The adoption of the entire digital asset space is now running at twice the speed of the internet at the same number of users, 140 million users. Now, if people remember, the internet between 1990 and 2000 was the fastest ever adoption of any technology in all recorded human history. And, this is, and that was 63% a year in those first 10 years. It's growing at 113% a year. We've never seen anything like this. And this is this migration. And you know, if we step back and say, what is all of this stuff we're talking about? It is literally tens of thousands of really smart people in real time building a new system. And it's not only just a financial system, it's the whole system of value and a modern future that doesn't rely on the past. And if they can scale it fast enough and build it robust enough, when the other system eventually fails, most of us will be safe. Yeah, and so th there's an interesting follow-up question to that because this is something that I've been wrestling with. And um, so as you can imagine, without Live Ventures, I am heavily exposed to crypto assets. Like 98% of my wealth is in some form of crypto, um, primarily fungible, increasingly a little bit in, in non-fungible tokens. Um, and, you know, we try to do forecasting and think about our, our growth rates as a business, as a VC firm. And to what extent is crypto uncorrelated to the wider financial system, to equities and whatever's going on? Um, like, to what extent today do you think it is 
Like if we don't have a, a massive crash in tech stock, for example, do you think that crypto would at this stage be immune to that? Or and at, at what point, if not, at what point do they decouple? Because it's this weird period, isn't there? Generally speaking, crypto is uncorrelated by pretty much every metric you look at. And it has passing correlation. Sometimes it follows bond yields. Sometimes it follows tech stocks. Sometimes it follows nothing at all. Sometimes it follows the dollar. But generally, it's uncorrelated over anything more than a few months. Except one point, which is in a panic. And everything is correlated in a panic because that's when the system that's over-levered says, hey, I need some margin. So, you know, that's the deposit you put on a house for your mortgage. But this is a real-time system. So the banks say, hey, listen, your investment's gone down. I need some surety from you. So people sell anything. That's never going to go away. And people, people are very new to this market in the crypto space. And they saw what happened in March 2020. And they think that, you know, therefore, it's, it's, it's correlated. No, everything gets correlated in that moment. Everything goes to a correlation of one. And that's okay. That's one of the risks that we have um, in a levered system. Um, but otherwise, what is what is crypto? Well, let's start with Bitcoin. It's easier to start with. It's essentially this store of value idea, but it's still very volatile. It doesn't look much like gold or dollars or bonds, which are much less volatile. So it's, it's very volatile, but it has this store of value property that we all understand. But why it's so volatile, it has a call option on the future, which is this whole digital asset space. You know, what is the Bitcoin blockchain going to be used for and how many people are going to use it? We don't know. But I'm not going to price that at zero. If I did, it would be priced like gold. But if you're going to price it as some probability of some huge exponential outcome, well, then it's going to be more volatile because you have to keep reassessing that. And it's going to trade in this ridiculous fashion where it, uh, it, it can move in huge increments very fast. Also, it can drop but it's based on the probabilities of the future. And the whole space is based on that. So if you think of all currency markets are basically based around the dollar. So, you know, the Indian rupee or the Indonesian rupiah or the Chinese yuan, they're all based around what the dollar's doing, really. All bond markets around the world are based basically what the US bond market's doing. And everything else is further out the risk curve. So this whole space is going to follow Bitcoin. And some of it will be uncorrelated for periods of time because there's something else going on, a bigger driver. But generally speaking, in the risk-off events, when people have got excessively bullish, they'll probably repatriate back to Bitcoin, probably Ethereum as well. But when they're feeling confident like people are today, they're moving further out the risk curve. So they're buying you know, JPEG rocks, you know, <laughs> and, and, and that's further out the risk curve. So there is correlations and non-correlations, but overall... It's not correlated to the existing financial system over a meaningful period of time, apart from a two-week, one-month panic. And that's amazing because that gives us an opportunity that we know that it diversifies the risk that we have and gives us a new risk and new rewards. So let's talk about the – let's just kind of close off on this idea of a Bitcoin uh, life raft because um, I know – that's kind of the starting point, right? It, the, the way that you can exit this this world of debasement of currency, of taxation, of inflation, the starting point, if you wanted to exit that system or hedge, is the Bitcoin lifecraft. Could you just talk us through that as a concept? So 
Firstly, okay, how does this financial system manifest itself, the, 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 the blowing up? Is it going to end in a bang, which is what everybody thinks? So the dollar goes to zero and everybody blows up and all the banks blow up. That's not going to happen. And the reason being is they've discovered a magic trick, which is you keep printing money and you, you hide it. But what that actually does is lower the value of your purchasing power. So if you look at it in different terms, your same salary buys less of a share of the S&P 500 bar of gold or a share of a Bitcoin than it used to before they started printing money. And every time they print money, keep, these things keep accelerating away. What are assets? Assets are your future consumption. You store your money in an asset, and then later you sell it to allow you to spend it. That's what assets are. So you're being able to buy less future consumption, i.e. you're poorer in the future. And so that creates a big problem. The other thing is the governments have kind of bankrupt by having spent so much money trying to bail out the economy so many times that they're going to tax you more. So therefore, your income is going to be less. Your future is going to be less. This is not good. And they've got the risk of banks blowing up and other things, which means you could lose all of your capital. So you've got a sinking ship. It's probably sinking slowly, but like the frog in the boiling water, you don't really realize it. And most people don't really understand it. They keep looking for the wrong thing, the dollar to go to zero or something to happen, and they don't realize they're already getting screwed. But there's the life raft, which is Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin, with its restricted supply and its outside of the banking system, no leverage, basically, or over collateralized, with the recorded ownership is a way of putting your assets into something that over time should do extremely well. Even if it's just because the central banks keep debasing the currency, Bitcoin will go up just by that amount. But as we know, it also gives you a call option on the future. So what you've got is an asset class that's currently, just Bitcoin alone, is currently just under a trillion dollars today. If we look at the size of the global equity markets, global bond markets, um, global real estate markets are all between 100 and $200 trillion. So what, is, what could Bitcoin be worth if that life raft takes us to dry land and gives you a chance? It's probably worth $100 trillion. So it's got 100x to go from here. Nobody watching this or listening to this will ever see an asset in their lives go up 100x that's already gone up 2 million percent. So it's the opportunity of everybody's lifetime to actually create wealth and it protects your wealth for the factors such as you know excessive taxation, although you can't really get out of the tax system, but it gives you optionality. It also gets you out of this currency debasement cycle that we're in. Also, we're in a very difficult world. Part of my exponential age thesis is the rise of technology such as AI, robotics, and all of these things. These are all going to be taking jobs away and opportunities. Salaries can't go up over time because you're competing with the machines. And if not, you're competing with somebody else elsewhere in the world. And we've got the baby boomers in the workforce at the same time as their kids, which has never happened before. So there is no salary going up. So the only way of generating wealth is to make the right investment decision.
or be lucky enough to start a business or, you know, or be in a business that pays more money. So that's the magnitude of the opportunity and of this life raft and what it can do for people. Yeah, and I've heard you refer to it as pristine collateral. And I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it. Uh, and I know you, you've done lots of charts showing how Bitcoin's outperformed pretty much every other asset class, just to kind of quantify um, the scale of what we're talking about here. Um, so as you just alluded to, this kind of idea of exponential um, assets and Bitcoin really is a foundation for a, for a new financial system. So could you talk us through what you mean by exponential assets and some of the kind of key concepts? So, you know, I, I know you refer to uh, things like Metcalfe's law, the Lindy effect. Um, could you talk us through how those play out in the context of exponential assets? So it really started without going back to railways and stuff, but really the mobile phone revolution was the first of these mega network effect businesses. So what is a network effect? Well, a network effect is if there's one mobile phone in the world, it's worth nothing. If there's two, it's worth something if you want to speak to that person. If everybody in the world is connected, it's one of the most valuable things you could possibly have. And then if you look at what happens with networks, once they become valuable because you've connected people, you can build other things on top of them. So the value of the network grows exponentially. And this was coined um, into something called Metcalfe's Law. And Metcalfe's Law suggests that you value a network based on not only the number of nodes, people on the network, but the number of connections they have with each other. Because the number of possibilities, much like we talk about the call option in Bitcoin, it's basically the same thing. What it's saying is the more people are connected, the more likely it is to create value. So what happened is this started with the internet on a dramatic scale, of a scale that humans couldn't imagine. And suddenly all these businesses became crazy valued. We didn't really understand how to value stuff. Why did Amazon trade all the way from like 99 to 2012 at a P of 800? Because it was not a normal stock, it was a network effect stock because it created a gigantic network. And that whole network effect leads to something called exponentiality. So there's a number of things in a network as well. You talk about the Lindy effects and S-curves is basically a network that comes under attack and survives is generally proven to be more robust, which is the Lindy effect and the higher probability it has of, of thriving because it's proven its robustness. And networks are distributed in nature generally, so they tend to be quite robust. Then you have something called S-curves. So then that's the moment in time where these big questions get asked. Like in Bitcoin, it was when the forking happened or when Mt. Gox went under. Is this network going to survive or not? Or we've kind of run out of use case for the time being of the network. And we've kind of seen that with Facebook recently. It's kind of like, it's, it's kind of run out of, of where it's going with Facebook, WhatsApp, and, and Instagram. Although you and I know that it's actually going somewhere different. Um, and it's starting to be reflected in the shares. But those things all come together. And as the adoption grows, the prices go exponential, which means that to anybody else, it looks like a bubble. And nobody understands it. It's like, this is crazy. And you can see this all over social media. 
But when you put it into a log chart, it's actually a very smooth progression. And that is how you have to look at these exponential assets. They're not like anything else. What's so good about them is they offer this upside that is beyond comprehension. This is why Bitcoin's gone up 2 million percent. Nothing else has ever done that before. So we have a very skewed risk reward. Now, Bitcoin could go to zero every year, let's say. But on average, it goes up 213%. I mean, that's an extraordinary risk reward every single year. And that's the power of exponentiality. These exponential assets also tend to be very volatile. Look at the tech stocks. They've always been volatile. Because it's all about network adoption, everything else is kind of noise in the middle. Once you understand network adoption is everything, and we talked about it earlier on, about this 113% growth rate, you kind of understand. And you can apply that to everything in the crypto space and in the metaverse space. You're just looking for adoption. Anybody who's trying to value stuff on cash flows or anything else is barking up the wrong tree. It's how many people are joining the network, are they using the network, and how many other applications are being built on that network. And that's what makes, you know, whether it's Ethereum, which is a phenomenal network effect, or Minecraft. These are so valuable because everything that's being built on these networks. Yeah, and obviously with the former, I know you've highlighted the the thing that's different here is that everybody, in theory, can now access that exponentiality as a shareholder in a way, right? So that that's yeah, that's a really crucial point. So in the past, Facebook had shareholders and users. The users got the benefit of the network. The shareholders got the benefit of Metcalfe's law, the value of the network. And as a user, you didn't get that at all, really. Then Bitcoin comes along, and it's basically the world's best behavioral incentive program. It's like the best thing behavioral economics could have ever devised as a human experiment. We're going to create a network of money. And the more people you bring into the network, the more it goes up in value. And we're going to build applications on it. So it's not a Ponzi scheme. It's actually something you can build on. This is like perfect for humans that we're going to go crazy on this stuff because we're all incentivized. Now we're all network users and owners at the same time. It's like every single person on Facebook being given Facebook shares. It's amazing. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I'm always blown away by economists that aren't excited by this and not just Bitcoin. They, they don't get it because they're mean reversionists. Because our careers, even as macro guys, is it's a bubble, let's short it, we'll make money. The business cycle's overheated, it's going to come down. Bonds are oversold, they're going to. All of these things are mean reversion. And that's the linear world. Mean reversion in an exponential trend is basically back to the exponential moving average, which is always rising. That, that was my next question, because I think it's a really important concept. Um, could you just explain the exponential moving average? So the exponential moving average essentially takes into account the, the speed of the trend and what happens. So as these assets go exponential, they always look like they're miles away from their trend lines and they should mean revert by 90% and everything's going to crash. And that's the, the linear world. But the exponential moving average takes into account the speed of which the appreciation happens. And what we find over time is whatever the, it's like, Sometimes it's the three-year exponential moving average. Whatever it is, there is, a, there is a kind of average that most of these assets reverts to. And if you want to be even simpler, just use the log chart. 
it'll go to the bottom of the log chart and then to the top of the log chart. And that's two stand. And if you put, um, I like to put um, regression lines of standard deviations from the average. And basically it goes to two standard deviations oversold to two standard deviations overbought, but it's still always within the trend. Linear things don't do that. They go up and they come back down again. Lumber is the classic example. We've all just seen this ridiculous boom in lumber that happened because of the supply shortage. And then it's come all the way back down again and it's now negative on the year. That's what economists understand. They don't understand this exponentiality. And I didn't for a long time. I couldn't square it because nobody had explained it to me properly. VC had got it a long time ago, but even they didn't explain it very well. Um, but now I think people, because you can participate in the network as a shareholder, as opposed to the VCs who are getting the shares and kind of understood from that perspective, now it's all come together. Everyone's going, I get it now. Yeah, and look, you know, and, and you've highlighted this as well. It's so complex, right? I mean, there's just so much to comprehend. If you can find alpha in it, and you know, that's what we're set up specifically to do. And even with 30 full-time people, you know, often we're turning around going, well, what's the hell is this thing? We weren't even aware of it. And like, it's the new latest thing and, you know, blindsides you, right? You, you just can't, can't, can't track it all. Um, but as you, again, you highlight like that's where the real alpha is. If you can just even make basic shapes, um, there's a lot of opportunity there. Now, the other thing I want to try to head off is if you speak to people coming into the space, um, perhaps those that are more risk averse, you know, they will say, well, crypto is more risky than other assets. And I think you've done a really good job of arguing, well, that's actually not the case. In fact, most people don't fully comprehend the level of risk that exists in the existing system in pension funds or other ways that they might, might be allocating their capital, right? That's right. So if people haven't dawned on people that they, they could have lost all of their money in the banking system in 2012 in Europe, People in Cyprus understand. I mean, all of their money was wiped out. So there's the probability of total wipeout. And we've seen it time and time again within the financial system. We've got these other risks that we don't understand, such as the debasement of money. The, these are risks we don't really understand. There's also confiscation risks, and we see that periodically. Basically, we're seeing it in China now. We've seen it in Russia in the past. We're all running risks. Then we've got a pension system that's underfunded. And so people don't understand that the fact that what they think is a retirement nest egg, A, is going to be worth less in real terms, and B, is not enough. And we've also got the social security or state benefits system, which is underfunded, which could bankrupt governments. We've got a lot of these big existential risks. Are we getting rewarded for them? That I don't think we are. We're not getting rewarded in government bonds anymore for the risk of something bad happening, whether it's excessive inflation or whether it's a government defaulting, which almost happened in Europe. So right now, Greek government bonds are negative. But if the ECB wasn't there, they'd default and you'd lose all of your money. So Bitcoin looks riskier because it's more volatile. But what a professional does is look at the risk reward. What is the risk? Well, the risk is probably, call it 75% downside over a two-year period. Is there a risk of it going to zero? It's almost negligible now. So let's call it a 75% downside. 
Well, still on average, it goes up 213%. So that's a three-for-one risk reward every single year. And over a three- or five-year time horizon, it tends to go up like 10x. Um, and generally, only with one of those drawdowns of that magnitude. So it's m- much less risky. Also, because as you talked about before, it's actually not correlated with other stuff. So most of us have legacy pension systems and houses that we bought and other stuff. Well, how does Bitcoin fit into that? Well, it's not correlated to all of that. So it offers benefits. So if the world goes to hell in a handbasket, chances are Bitcoin's going to appreciate in price. So it's a hedge. It's how people use gold in the past as well. Um, but this happens to be gold for the digital age. Um, and that's a very powerful thing. So it may be perceived as risky, but again, you're also looking at it through linear eyes. Just to explain to people exponentiality versus linearity. So if I take 20 linear steps across my office and into my lounge, you know, I get, you know, call it 10 meters across. If I take 20 exponential steps, I go around the world like twice. That's what people can't understand. How, how can that be? But that's what exponentiality is. So that is going to be volatile by nature, but it's going to be offset by the re- returns that you get. Yeah. And like I always say, you know, zoom out, right? The, the trends generally upwards. And as you say, even if there's a correction of 75%, whatever the trigger, whether it's that S-curve moment, whether it's you know the market's got ahead of itself, ahead of demand, um, like we saw early part of this year, okay, 75, 80% down. I think we're less than two months from that happening. And I'm looking at my portfolio, it's it's only 20% from all time highs of earlier this year. Um, so if you weren't paying attention for the last two months, it's like nothing happened. Um, and, and that's, the, that's the weird thing about this space. So yeah, I mean, it's very different to the bets that early stage VCs take, because in that you have to accept that a certain amount aren't going to work. You're dealing with unproven technologies, unproven business models. That's very different. Here it's actually, as you said, just zoom out. You know, How's it looking on the log chart? Are people joining that network? Is it being used? And that's basically all you need to do. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to do this. It's not, as, it's not that hard. What, what you do is hard. This is actually not that hard. It's actually a gift. Well, I mean, I certainly feel a lot more comfortable um, about my exposure talking to you, which is which is always nice. Um, but let's look at one of the other the big things that people try to price in with regards to risk in crypto, which is the regulatory environment. Um, and again, you know, I think I've throughout I've been exposed to different regulators. We've been involved in the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance, the Digital Trade of Commerce. You know, we've had conversations at, at various levels within Europe, the UK, actually disappointing levels of conversation in the UK of all places. Big missed opportunity, but I won't go into that. Um, I've always found regulators a lot more accommodating to crypto than I think most people perceive. And I know you're a big advocate of that too. Um why is that? So I think most people think that crypto is a threat to the existing financial system, to, to their fiat-based system, whatever it may be. So why are they ever going to allow it to happen? Putting aside to what extent can they stop it? Why do you think that they are going to positively engage with it? Because it is a network of which they have no control over. So whether they like it or not, it's happening. And behind closed doors, Of course, the ECB 
understands that it is supporting the entire European Union by using its balance sheet and it's printing money to do so. And this is not a good situation and the banks don't operate. The UK also knows that its banks are broken. They don't operate properly. And the life systems on life support and it requires monetary printing because there are no interest rates. The Federal Reserve understands that, the Bank of Japan, everybody. They're just not going to tell you because if they do, you'll have a loss of faith in money. So if they see the parallel financial system, these are not alien creatures. These, they'll go, you know what, this is pretty useful. Maybe this is the collateral for something that we can use. Maybe we can get away from the excessive leverage. Maybe it brings monetary velocity back. And the answer was very quickly, we should join it, which was central bank digital currencies. We get it. This is where it's going. And we've got a broken banking system. So central bank digital currencies allow us to maybe circumvent the banking system, be able to give money directly to people or businesses and to get around monetary policy, which has reached the end of its limits. So then what they're doing is telling you, okay, we get this. We're going to dovetail in with it. But we as governments need to make sure if we're going to provide you with roads and garbage collection and all of this stuff, we need to get taxes paid because if not, we're going to go bust. So as long as we can tax it, as long as we figure out there's no criminal activity going on, we're kind of okay with it because right now it's not big enough to matter. You know, whatever people in Bitcoin world think it is, a $1 trillion asset is noise. You know, Apple is a trillion dollars. Well, more, it's 2.4 trillion now. But, um, you know, it's, it's noise. When it gets to $100 trillion, yeah, okay, it's the size of the real estate market or stuff like that, and it becomes more important. But the regular, so the, the regulators are now trying to think, okay, we know this is coming. It's a network. It's growing ridiculously fast. What we need to do is try and slow it down so we can get our ducks in a row which is how, do we, how the hell do we regulate DeFi, NFTs, social tokens? How do we regulate the metaverse? All of this stuff, they have no idea, nor do any of us. <laughs> you know, our answer is, well, just don't regulate it. But governments don't want to do that because they have to walk away from things that they have taken to be truths, which is that some people should not be allowed to invest in riskier things. But the counter argument is, but you're allowed to go to Vegas and nobody cares. right? So. That came out of probably the 19, well, it did, came out of uh, the, the 1930 crash. Um, and there was a lot of scams going on, as there is in the crypto space. And what, they, what the banks did was lobby to say, we should have control over how the capital gets allocated. We can't give it to the people. And the governments go, yeah, that makes total sense. You know, These guys are all getting screwed here. You guys are sensible. What it meant for the banks is obviously a windfall gain that they control the whole system. And that's the Securities Act. If you call it a security, then basically you have to go through a bank. We need to get rid of all of that. And I think they know it. I mean, Gary Gensler's got to feel stupid in the US standing up saying, you know, we think this is a security. They know that it's not a security. They just don't know how to, how to make sure that people don't get screwed and they get their fair share of it. And they kind of get some ability to manage the pace of appreciation of the adoption before it gets rid of all the banks. Because you don't really need money centre bank. Why do you need Barclays in the UK or some bank in Ohio? You don't. All those European money centre banks, you don't need them. Because with DeFi, fintech, 
central bank digital currencies and Bitcoin, you've basically got a whole financial system built for you. You've got borrowing, lending, saving, collateral, um, and you've got transfer of payments, instantaneous. So it's there. And that's why I keep talking about this parallel financial system that's being built. That's what's going on. So regulation <clears throat> is only going to create more adoption. So all of the institutions, all of the investment advisors or IFAs in the UK will advise their clients to do it once they know that they can't get into trouble for recommending it. And it's as simple as that. So the more regulation that comes, the more people get involved. You know, we're all terrified once you go further out the risk curve, what NFTs, social tokens, DeFi mean for regulators. We just don't know. So the moment BlackRock or the UK pensions or whoever it is, is given the green light to use DeFi for yield, they put trillions of dollars into it because it's got high yields right now and not that big a risk. So it will come. It will have to come slowly because they've got to manage this whole situation, figure out how to regulate it, what should they regulate, what shouldn't they regulate. I mean, I don't think they really should stop certain types of people having access to it. I think there needs to be some warnings about the space and stuff like that. I, I don't know how to deal with the scams, but the scams in startups, the scams in equity businesses, the scams down the street when you you know get your shoes shined, you know the scams everywhere. We can't protect humans from themselves fully. Yeah, and look, I guess there's there's two parts of this, isn't there? So on the one hand, you talk about migration. There's this migration of wealth of assets into this new financial system, and then there is wealth creation. And again, I know that you're a big advocate, like me, that this is probably the biggest period, moment of wealth creation we've ever witnessed um, because of its convergent nature, um, because of its exponential nature, and because of its permissionless nature. The fact that pretty much anybody can enter this economic system, they can contribute value, they can speculate on its value, and, and they can basically take all the tools that Wall Street had and play around with ways of financializing assets that currently on an asset, right? Digital va- How much digital value currently is, is, is not an asset that could be used as collateral and borrowed and lent against. You, you could argue that there are whole generations whose wealth is not recognized by the existing financial systems. One of the really interesting things I am excited about by the interaction between DeFi and NFTs if you think about it in the world of gaming, and we'll hopefully get to talk about this when I come on your show, you know, all these billions of dollars of gaming items, skins, whatever it may be, trapped in a platform, non-transferable, and you certainly can't walk into a bank and get a loan. Like the minute that that all gets unleashed, whether it's directly or through derivatives, um, I think that's going to be really exciting. Um, but let's maybe, before we get into the metaverse, uh, just kind of... Talk around DeFi a little bit. So, because let's imagine these are two parallel systems at the moment. And, you know, DeFi is now allowing you to do increasingly complex forms of borrowing and lending, albeit in in comparison to the existing financial system, very crude, rudimentary, you know, stable coins, some wrapped Bitcoin, maybe some NFTs now. Um but how do you look at DeFi? Do you see it as something that always has to be p- pure, permissionless, and, and somehow separate from the existing financial system? 
or are you looking at this? There's some kind of these bridges being built in this interaction between CFI and DeFi. Yeah, I think it's going to be a hybrid. I think there's too much of a vested interest within the financial system to be part of this movement. How that orchestrates itself, we don't know, but I don't think it's going to exist in a vacuum outside, totally permissionless. Some of it will, and that's okay too. It's good. We also don't know yet the risk in DeFi. We haven't been through enough of a cycle. It's like saying junk bonds are a miracle. They pay super interest only when you take into account defaults. Do you know what the actual rate of interest is over time? So DeFi is very interesting because it has proven to be pretty robust so far. You know, we had a massive sell-off. Uh, you know, in you know some of the DeFi protocols were down eighty percent. Nothing happened. Bitcoin, the collateral of the system, fell. Nothing happened. So that that's great. So DeFi has a real future. Everybody's eyeing it. It's the least exciting part of the ecosystem for me because it's just borrowing and lending, right? In the end, yeah, it's cool that we've got algorithms to do it now. Algorithms have been replacing people in the financial system for a long time. You know, when I, in about 2000, when I was at Goldman Sachs, we started bringing um, automated market making for derivatives. Um, when we bought Hull Trading, um, Swiss Bank bought O'Connor. These kind of things have been going on, replacing traders, replacing people in the banks for a long time. So for me, it's nothing different than that, really. And yes, some will replace banks themselves, but it's replacing one system with another. The rest of this space is creating an entirely new system. And I've referred to it as like discovering the Americas. You're going to create new GDP. DeFi is shuffling GDP from one to another. Right, we'll take it away from JP Morgan and give it to whichever protocol we're doing the DeFi on. Yeah, okay, interesting. Staking is different, however, because staking is now a risk-free yield. If your if your base currency is ETH, then you can stake your ETH risk-free and earn a yield. Okay, that's people haven't figured this out properly yet. How extraordinary staking is now. It's going to be when it when it all you know, fully, fully integrates. But as I said, it's the, the DeFi thing is a replacement. Everything else that's going on is the new unleashing of digital value, which is what you alluded to a minute ago. So just before we go into the metaverse, um, a lot of criticism by people that actually are advocates of crypto leveled at DeFi is that this yield is unsustainable. Now, clearly you think it is sustainable. Presumably that's because of this exponential asset that you're kind of buying into somehow the exponential growth like how would you no I, I actually don't think it's sustainable okay because the if you think of what it is it's a it's a it's a vessel to take capital and in return it gives a yield there is a lot of capital in the world it just currently doesn't use DeFi. if you put massive capital into DeFi. Yields are going to collapse. You've got a risk curve where, let's say, Tether trades at 8% and Bitcoin is at 3%. So there's a risk curve for you as well because you've got a riskier asset. Or there's more demand for Tether because most of the stable coins are similar because people are using them for different things to get around capital controls and, and other issues. So we will see, like we have with junk bonds versus US government bonds, we see different yields, and that's that's normal. 
But as soon as this space actually opens up to the capital, there is no way you can generate excess because capital is capital. Now, if you're in a Bitcoin-only system or ETH-only system, it will be different because you're not subject to the monetary printing or the amount of dollars, yen, pounds, euros. It's, it's then different. So I think that things like ETH staking, although probably correlated, will not be fully correlated to the capital markets. DeFi will be capital market driven otherwise, though. Interesting. And of course, you know, I mean, DeFi in the context of even crypto is still sub 10%, maybe even 5% of all capital is actually put to work in DeFi at the moment. Um, so I guess you're saying that there's still room for that to be sustainable, both in terms of how it gets more crypto allocated in it, but then whilst it's still at, you know, below 2 trillion or whatever it is, around a 2 trillion mark, the, the level of capital coming into the space, especially from the fiat system, is not big enough. Yeah, I mean, how much is locked in DeFi right now? 60 billion or something? It's, it's actually, I mean, it's noise. It's just noise in the financial system terms. And there's lots of developments, new things happening. So yes, it will stay higher yield for a while. Um, and when the regulators unleash the normal capital markets, yields are going to collapse. Good. I just wanted to kind of get that, that covered off. So so let's talk about your metaverse moment. I believe it was triggered by an experience with one of your neighbor's kids and watching how, how they were spending their time. And did that immediately connect the dots in the context of all of the thinking that you've been having already about exponential assets and Bitcoin and crypto? No, because this was a few years ago. So I was, it was actually on my 50th birthday, I was passing through the UK on my way to India um, for a holiday, and I went to see my oldest friend, who I've known since I was five or six. And as I said, his kid was 13, 14, and it was a Saturday afternoon uh, in Ascot, nice sunny day, and his kid's in a gaming chair. I'm like, Daryl, what's going on there? And he's like, well, he's been out playing football this morning, but now he's socializing with his friends, right? Daryl and I would socialize at the shopping precinct, um, and we would hang out there, meet our friends, figure out what the party is, go and have coffee with people. And he's explaining that his son is socializing in um, Minecraft, I think it was. No, Fortnite. He was socializing within Fortnite with like 12 of his friends, one of whom was based in the US, somebody was based in Spain, somebody he'd met on holiday two years ago, and his next door neighbor, and some kids from school. And they were chatting to each other, they were larking around, they were playing together, solving problems together, and also they were exchanging things. And I kind of understood what Fortnite was about at that point. I was like, okay, it's not a game. It's a virtual world. But I hadn't put all of it together really until I, I sat down and talked to Pierce Kicks because I'd got to the point of I understood NFTs, where that's all going in the future. I think that everything is going to coalesce around communities and community tokens is going to be the big rising business model. But then the whole lot ends up being, obviously, in the metaverse. And the metaverse, again, I think people confuse themselves between you know, some dystopian Ready Player One world. It actually can be AR, VR. It can be 2D. It can be 3D. It can be anything. It's where the digital and the real worlds combine. And we're already seeing it. I mean, you and I are talking 
effortlessly over video in different continents. We don't think anything about it any longer. I mean, I have drinks with several people over Zoom, and I'm used to it. Um, but people can't get their heads around this yet. Um, but I just think of how I'm thinking of it. I've actually come at it as the community angle is the biggest angle of all, is humans are tribal. We like to be in communities. And how do communities operate? Communities are complex adaptive societies, be they religions, governments, you know, states, or or groups that we hang out with. They usually have a leader, kind of some sort of vision, a set of rules, and usually a system of value. You know, religions have, you know, you'll go to heaven or hell, they have a bunch of different values built into that. You know, governments have taxation and currency and all of this stuff. And that couldn't happen on the internet until crypto came along. Then suddenly you can now create essentially states, and it can be of 300 people. It could be of 3.5 billion people, which is what Facebook is about to become. So you've created nation states with their own money. And if you want to live in a nation state, to combine us all together, you're going to have to live in a digital world. Because you and I could be, well, we are. We're part of the crypto tribe, right? It's our nation state. We've got our currencies. We've got a set of rules. We know how it works. Well, how do we live there? You know, what are we supposed to have? Zoom calls with everybody? Or Twitter? Bit clunky. But in the metaverse, we can all come together. So it's an extraordinary change to just how humans operate. We can be separate, but together. And then us being humans, We'll figure out a way of making money, having a sense of purpose, and creating opportunity out of it. And you know that that's what's so big. And crypto is basically the foundation stone to allow this all to happen. Because without it, we're all exchanging JPEGs. With it, we're exchanging value. Yeah, and I know again you, you've spoken about this. This crypto enables this open, permissionless economic system or layer that I would argue is the very definition of. The metaverse, right? For it to be meta, it, it has to be above um, any individual world and also any instance of a nation state. So, so actually, so far, the only one I've seen um, that fulfills that promise potential is, is is crypto, right? You can transfer value value because we have supranational currencies, Bitcoin. Even whether you refer to Ethereum as a currency or not, these are supranational with nobody controlling them. So as you say, it's exactly the definition of what the metaverse needs. How do you understand the assets that you're seeing emerging in the metaverse? So I know you're looking at NFTs and, of course, um, whether it's art or collectibles. And actually, in aggregate, I, I kind of look at those more as um, atomized socialness. So they're kind of a social media without a platform for the first time ever, just like Bitcoin was money without a bank. Um, NFTs are social media without a social media platform. But beyond that, how are you looking at NFTs and as an asset, a growing asset class, increasingly diverse asset class? Well, I think firstly, the key point is you're now able to invest in culture. And if you can do that and you get it right, you can make a lot of money. We've all seen huge cultural movements and you could be part of it, but now you can own a part of it, which is that difference between the Facebook shares and the Facebook network and Bitcoin brought them all together, this is the powerful thing. You know, 
networks of people have value and you can be part of that and get some of the value. So I'm thinking a lot about that, but NFTs for me, firstly, you know, when the Beeple piece of art came out, I got it immediately. I had no issue with it because for me, I've got rock and roll photographs here signed by famous photographers like Mick Rock. Now, it's let's say it's a one of six. I don't own the negative. I could basically just find it on the web and print it out and put it in a frame, but it's signed. It's an NFT. <laughs> signed photography is an NFT. And if you have the negative as well, it's super scarce. So scarcity has value. So I completely get that. And I don't think it's any different. I don't think it's any different at all. But NFTs are bigger than all of this because it's not about art and culture necessarily. It's about the fact that anything digital or physical can now be recorded, transferable, verifiable, instantaneously, and that ownership makes it have value. And it can be anything. It can be an insurance contract. It could be intellectual property rights. It could be a piece of art. It could be music. It could be anything. And again, the space hasn't got its head around it. It's, it's Everyone's busy buying collectibles. And collectibles is the first use case. But where it's going is going to be basically, it's our keys to everything. It's If you think about it in the future, this is going to be everything. Because my money will be here. My interest earning stuff will be here. And I get to choose how I do that. That's DeFi. My central bank digital currencies. My um, NFTs that I collect. And there'll be real-time mark-to-market. So the things that I have will have potential value in real time. And they'll unlock communities for me. So if I want to get into that community, I need my NFT or my social token to do so. And all of this will become this fluid world of having to pass these things around. And even with the element of humans passing value around, there will be a middleman, and there is already, because if I want to exchange my NFT for Ethereum, somebody needs to make a market. There's money for everybody in this new system. There will be middlemen. It's not going to get rid of all middlemen. Some will be replaced by machines, but it's it's an entirely new change to the global business model it, on a magnitude that people can't get their heads around. They think the internet was big, but the internet was just one of the base layers of what this is going to be. Yeah. And of course, all things that I'm looking forward to talking about when I come on your show. But finally, so I'm working on a blog post at the moment. And I wonder if you can help me. So a lot of people, when they see me talking about the metaverse, firstly feel it, it and they're not quite sure how they can participate in it, like where to start, right? They're overwhelmed, as you say, because of all the complexity, all the possibility. I think most people, once they have a few few light bulb moments, it clicks, it overwhelms them. So I'm writing a post called um, How to Exit Fiat and Enter the Metaverse. And I'm going to try and lay it out in some simple steps as like what anybody can do to begin to migrate to the metaverse. For you, what would be some some easy first steps? As you and I talked about, crypto is a core part of this. 
And the acceptance of the technology and the rise of this technology is the first step. So I would say, buy some Bitcoin. Then once you've got the Bitcoin, you'll have a look at Ethereum and you'll realize a lot of this is being used to build out a lot of the applications in the metaverse. So you will end up with an allocation to Ethereum. So now you've got a stake in this future because it's being built on this. Now, there's no guarantee that Ethereum will end up being the base layer of the metaverse. But right now, it's the base la- It's the money of the internet. I mean, if you buy and sell an NFT, it's in ETH. It's not in Bitcoin. So ETH is currently money on the internet right now. And that can change over time. So do that. And then I think it's just you need to keep an open mind. There is no, we don't know how this is going to develop because it is a complex, adaptive world that's being built. And there's everybody fighting for a share of it from Apple to Facebook to Epic Games to you know guys in a garage trying to figure something out. We don't know where it's going, but just keep an open mind to the fact that a digital world is the equivalent of the real world. They're the same thing. It's just a different lens through which we look at it. And once people get used to that, as you said, maybe you buy a piece of digital art. I don't because I don't know how to value it and I don't know you know, what makes sense and what doesn't. But if you need to do that to get over the hurdle of, okay, I've now owned this thing. Yes, somebody can copy it and put it on their screensaver, but they don't own the actual one, which is a one of one or whatever the number is. So there's a few small steps people can take that don't cost a lot of money and don't require you to go down the entire rabbit hole and start watching Ready Player One or read Snow Crash. You don't need to do that to start. You just need to keep an open mind. But the start is with the cryptocurrency. Great. Amazing to have you on, Raoul. I'm really looking forward to returning. Yeah, I'm looking forward to picking your brains next to to dig into more of this because, you know, it's, it's so fascinating. You know, we're even though the world's a pretty screwed up place, this is one of the most exciting times to be alive because you can either fear change or you can embrace it. And as you alluded to before, the other benefit of, of embracing this change, and this is not just crypto and the metaverse, this is AI, robotics, distributed computing, um, EV, I mean, the list, genetic science, and the list is endless. Over the next 10 years, the world will, will have moved on faster than any other period in history. The best thing about this is we can make a lot of money out of it too. Absolutely. And so just to close off, um, where can people find you talking about this kind of stuff? Yeah, so look, I'm always approachable on Twitter. So at Raoul, R-A-O-U-L-G-M-I. But really the best thing is I started a whole free video channel. Real Vision is a you know video on demand platform um, for kind of, helping people understand the complex world of finance business and the global economy. And we kind of interview the world's best experts, you know, in-depth analysis, that kind of stuff. But I started a free crypto version of it because it's so important to me that people understand where we're going and how big an opportunity this is. So go to realvisioncrypto.com or realvision.com forward slash crypto. Either way, it's free. Just sign up with your email and there's hundreds of videos of the world's best people in the space Um, talking about all aspects of it, from the simple things like me talking about the exponential age to the really complex of, you know, how does the Polkadot ecosystem work? And you'll find something that interests you. Don't expect to know everything. I don't. None of us do. Choose the thing that interests you and then go down that rabbit hole and you'll thoroughly enjoy it. 
So yeah, Real Vision is a good place to start. Ralph, thanks so much for coming on. No, really enjoyed it and uh, I'll see you soon. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.